Hello, it's Caroline. I'm just here to tell you that this episode that you're about to listen to was recorded during a time when I still used Patreon. I do not use Patreon anymore, but you can find helpful resources by going to thefuckadiet.com slash more. You can also read the beginning of the Fuck a Diet book for free from my site. Lastly, this podcast is extremely messy. And it was actually intentionally messy and unstructured because that was the only way I could inspire myself to start and continue this podcast. I needed the lowest stakes possible. And though this podcast remains very low budget and has remained messy throughout the years until now, if you want slightly more structured and streamlined episodes, listen to the more recent episodes. All right, enjoy. Welcome to the Fuck It Diet with Caroline Dooner podcast. In the past week, I have renamed it on iTunes like a like re, like a really stupid person who's just playing with fire because two years ago my podcast was taken down for having a quote unquote self bleeped curse word in it. It was fuck with the asterisk, and apparently that was not good enough. So that's why I changed it to the stupid F in like letter F in quotes. But I just checked iTunes and there are plenty of podcasts with the self-bleeped curse word in the title. And so I got mad and I changed it back. But it might be really stupid because they might just be, they might do like a a bi-yearly audit or something. So it might, I might have to deal with it all over again. I, I don't know if I'm playing with fire, but I'm playing with fire. Maybe I'm bored. I don't know. Maybe I want a little drama. Just kidding. I definitely do not want drama. But I just, I'm so annoyed. I've been so annoyed for the past two years. And people have been so confused. And they they type in the name of the book. Or they type in the fuck it diet. Or they, they, they can't find it. They cannot find the podcast by searching for it. And so it's just so frustrating. And maybe they went through a year, like a, a year-long <laughs> prude phase and they changed it I don't know I, I I don't know but anyway I stupidly changed it back so we'll see we'll just keep our eyes on it see what happens now the other thing that I want to say is that um they actually you know iTunes doesn't host the podcast so the podcast always still existed even when they took it down but they took it down from their listing so there was no way to find it through iTunes however People who already were subscribed were still subscribed to the podcast through iTunes, weirdly, because that's how it works. And it's a very confusing thing that's very difficult to explain. Um, Because I don't know if you know this, but you can actually subscribe to a podcast that doesn't even exist on iTunes through iTunes and then listen to it through the like podcast app, the um, the Apple podcast app by just using the RSS feed. Like there are some Patreon podcasts where that you like pay for the the RSS feed and then you have to actually like manually type it in. Um, that's how Fiona Willer's podcast is, which again, I really, really highly recommend if you're curious about the science end of this whole thing. She does a really good job breaking it down and it's $5 a month. And <sighs> anyway, so... That was my long way of saying I've changed the name again to something that is, that makes more sense, that it will be easier for people to find, but that also might be, get me into trouble at some point. 
you know, I had all these other really rambly things recorded and my dog was chewing on a bone next to me and I was freaking out and I got really hungry and I had to go downstairs and I had to make lunch. I started eating it, came back upstairs to be like, what have I done? What have I done? And I just decided that I'm going to just share right now, right now. My conversation with Christy Harrison, who's an anti-diet dietitian, host of the Food Psych podcast, and author of the book Anti-Diet, which is coming out on Christmas Eve. I hope you enjoy the conversation, and I will be back to ramble just like a tiny, teeny baby bit uh, after the conversation with Christy is over. Enjoy. Hi, Caroline. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited that you're here. I'm so excited to talk about your book. Um, and also the crazy thing that I thought the other day is that this, this might be number five of the podcasts that we've recorded together. Oh my God. Yes. I think you're right. Right. Because you've been on my podcast before, right? Mm -hmm. I think I was on once, maybe twice. I can't remember. Like in the beginning, a Mm -hmm. couple years ago. And I think I was on yours three times, including the live episode. So this is five for us, which is pretty impressive. (laughs) It really is. I feel like I haven't had this many podcast episodes with anyone else probably ever. (laughs) Well, I feel very proud. Um, I want to jump in and talk about your book that's coming out so soon, December 24th, right? Christmas Eve? Christmas Eve. God, so exciting. It's called Anti-Diet. Do you call it it Anti-Diet or Anti-Diet? I say anti just because that's how I say that word anyway, yes. but I okay. hear people say anti-diet sometimes too. I've know. been saying anti-diet. Yeah. I've given it the full emphasis. Nice. Um, will you tell us what it's about? I mean, I, it seems obvious enough, but I, I just want to hear you talk about your book. Yes. Oh, it's, I could talk about it all day. Uh, so it's about, it, it is an anti-diet book and really it's about diet culture. Mm-hmm. It's about what this system of beliefs is that makes us think we need to shrink our bodies and be smaller and eat less food and eat the quote unquote right foods. Like how did we get here and how can we get out of it? And how, how does the system, really the system of beliefs and system of oppression keep us from reaching our full potential, keep us from engaging fully in our lives and really steal life from us. I have this metaphor of the life thief that Mm -hmm. I often use when describing diet culture because it really steals our time our mental energy and our money and our happiness and our well-being and like all these things that, you know, make up a life. Right. It takes so much from us and, and it promises. Di- sorry, oh, sorry. I was going to say those are different sections of the book too, right? Yep. Yeah. So there's a chapter on each of those things, uh, you know, time, money, well-being, happiness. There's a, there's actually two chapters on the history of diet culture. Cause I was so fascinated by it. I couldn't just limit myself to one. It's so, so it's- good. I mean, that's the beginning of the book. And I just remember, I read the book and I remember being like, Oh my God, this is so good. I'm so excited for everyone to read it. It's so good. Thank you. Yeah. No, that history stuff was like wild to just go down the rabbit hole of, cause some of it I, I had sort of heard and knew about a little bit as having researched in this field and been in this field for a while, but I, you know, really dove into the research and did a lot of deep digging and, you know, historical literature and scientific data from back in the day. And it was really fascinating to see the evolution of diet culture through the it's years. Nuts. It's nuts. It's nuts. And nobody, like we don't, I, I'd never heard that stuff before, before I did my own research for my book and then read yours. I, that's, this is stuff that we do not grow up thinking about. 
no, we're just taking, we take diet culture as a foregone conclusion as though like, this is the way it is. Mm -hmm. And science says, and like PS science does not say, right. <laughs> like there's no good, um, you know, evidence behind diet culture beliefs, but right. yeah, we just, we don't get that sort of nuanced understanding and that historical look at how we came to believe what we believe. And so that's like, that's why I wanted to open the book with that because I wanted to position what we've been taught to think about food and weight in this historical context and in this cultural context as like received wisdom that we've gotten from the culture right. that is not, it's not the truth, capital T and exactly. you know, open up ways for people to start questioning that. And I think that the belief part is such an important way to begin to unpack this because without looking at the fact that these are beliefs that we have learned, it's impossible to begin to step away from it because it feels like a, like a truth, you know? Totally. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, hard to separate yourself from something that feels like who you are mm -hmm. or you know, just the way of the world. And so, yeah, learning the basis of these beliefs. And also to me, I think one of the most um, impactful things that I found in, in my research was that it's diet culture is based in other systems of oppression, like racism, patriarchy, misogyny, sex, uh, xenophobia. Like it's, it's really uh, rooted in some problematic stuff. And so I think for anyone who is concerned at all about social justice, I think that can be another way into seeing that, you know, oh, this stuff is harmful. And not only has it harmed me in my life and many other people, but it, it dates back to some really harmful roots that I don't want to be a part of. And yeah. so, you know, can kind of give people another um, way to resist it. Another way in and another way out, essentially. <laughs> right. Because exactly. it's not just about health. Yeah. It, it's actually really bad for us, but it goes so much deeper than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it goes to this really human level and, you know, human rights level. I think fat acceptance is essential as a form of human rights and social justice that we have so overlooked. And I think diet culture has conditioned us to overlook, even as other forms of identity were becoming more and more recognized and yeah. you know, given more rights. Not that we're there at all with anything, but right, right. You know, it's at least uh, socially unacceptable in many circles to say overtly racist things or overtly right. sexist things. And that is not the case with overtly fat phobic things. I know. I think about that all the time. It's, and it, once you see it, it's so obvious. It's like, how, how are we doing? Like, how are we thinking that this is okay? <laughs> but it, it, it does come down to this belief that you know, weight is fully within our control. Right. And that's like this, this sort of like basis belief that we soak in that like your weight is, is a reflection of your habits, which we know is not true. And we take a lot of time to try and debunk that. But I think when people believe that, you know, you could do something about it, people feel justified. I mean, obviously mm -hmm. we know it's cruel no matter what it's cruel, no matter whether you, it actually is within your hands or not. But, um, I, people feel weirdly justified that they need to like, you know, shame people into improvement or whatever. Oh yeah. And like shame has never improved anything. Shame no. only makes things worse. There's science on that too. Like, you know, it's, it's so much more 
helpful to any make any change from a place of self-compassion. Mm -hmm. But then when it comes to weight, like it really is not within our control anyway. So trying to make changes in body size, whether from a place of shame or a place of self-compassion, usually just leads to the same results, which is frustration, weight regain, you know, oftentimes gaining back more weight than people lost. And not that there's anything wrong with that at all, because I'm health at every size and mm -hmm. fat positive. And I think that, you know, weight is a morally neutral thing. But I think people are are tricked by diet culture into thinking that, you know, weight is within their control and that if they just try hard enough, they can lose the weight and keep it off forever. And that's really not true. And that's not what we see in the research. Right. And it's a miserable cycle to be in that essentially never ends, mm -hmm. you know. Um, let's talk. So the book is called anti-diet and you call yourself an anti-diet dietitian, which I love. And I love that the book is called anti-diet. Um, and there's something that I read recently that I actually had never thought about before. And it was about the difference between the term non-diet and anti-diet. And I never even really considered that they were potentially two different things or two similar, but not exactly the same things. Do you have um, any opinions on that, on the difference oh, yes. between those terms? I want to hear. Yeah. I mean, so I didn't read the thing you're talking about because I've been basically in a hole, like <laughs> <laughs> retreated from social media for a while just to shore up my own uh, boundaries and oh, yeah. rest. I'm doing a lot of rest. You're, you're two years so of rest. Good. I'm trying to so do like good. six months of rest at least before yes. the book comes out. Um, so yeah, I have not read much you know, on that topic. But what I, what I have thought for a long time is that, you know, I call myself anti-diet rather than non-diet in a, an intentional way. Mm -hmm. And that's because anti-diet, I think is a more political stance. It has a more overtly sort of revolutionary feel to it. And I think yeah. that what I'm trying to do as an anti-diet dietitian is revolutionary. Not that I'm like this great revolutionary person, but I'm following in the footsteps of the fat acceptance movement and body liberation and, you know, a lot of people in larger bodies who've come before me who fought for their own liberation and the liberation of others. And I want to position my work within that lineage. And, yeah. you know, I think anti-diet has that sort of revolutionary uh, feel to it. And it also really conveys that, you know, when I say anti-diet, I, I don't mean anti-dieter. I don't mm -hmm. mean just anti-fad diet, although that's part of it. Right. What I really mean is anti-diet culture is all right. of it is, you know, all of this thinking, not again, not, not anti the people who are doing it, who are, who are dieting, because those are just people who've bought into the lies that our culture has told all of us the way that you and I and everyone we know has at some point. So, right. you know, don't play, hate the player, hate the game, right? The game is, <laughs> is diet culture. <laughs> right. I mean, that's, that's probably the most positive context I've heard that yeah. used. <laughs> I know. That's great. Um, but yeah. And it's it's so, know. I mean, it's actually really clear now once I read the thing and I hear you talking about it, that non-diet is sort of like, oh, well, we're not dieting, but we're still, you know, there's still mm -hmm. su such a potential to adopt diet culture mentality within that. I've never had to think about it too much because the fuck it diet is very clearly anti-diet, you mm -hmm. know what I mean? So I've never even really had to say whether it was non-diet or anti-diet, but, <laughs> um, but it makes so much sense that anti-diet is is a lot more like I I have serious problems with you know, the way that we're operating as opposed to like, mm, let's just like maybe, you know, not 
let's just be moderate, you know? Right. It's not a diet. It's a lifestyle. Right, 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 right. And I mean, I will say I have many good friends in this movement who are, who label themselves as non-diet dietitians. And I think, especially in like Australia, that term non-diet has sort of taken on this like much larger recognition maybe right. than it has in the U.S. I think like, um, you know, the way non-diet is framed there is maybe how we talk about intuitive eating where it's a little right. more of a buzzword. So I think that, you know, it's complicated for folks like my Australian friends who are firmly anti-diet, who are like, you know, very much fuck diet culture oriented, but they need to be sort of positioned in this lineage that is right. like non-diet. But I think- and that's fine, right? As long as yeah. the work you're doing is anti-diet, you know, and right. And I think that's the problem is that some people use the non-diet label and are not doing work that's right. anti-diet. They're doing work that's, it's a lifestyle change. It's a lasting program for weight loss. P.S. That doesn't exist, right? Like it's, right. it's framing it as it's not a diet. It's just this other thing that's going to basically lead to the same outcomes that diet culture wants you to have, which is, you know, smallness and thinness and like quote unquote, perfect eating. Right. And I feel like it's happening a lot right now that diet culture is co-opting intuitive eating, even the, t the term intuitive eating, and it's been happening for a while, but I think because it's gaining popularity, it's just mm -hmm. kind of getting worse and worse. And it's so confusing to people who are just starting out and not knowing, you know, who to follow or who to trust or, and wanting, you know, a lot of people who start learning about intuitive eating, hope that it really can be something that can give them what they always hoped that diets could, you know? I know. So it's, uh, it's, it's a tough, tricky. it's really tricky. Yeah. And I think diet culture, that's diet culture's game, right? It always mm -hmm. wants to co-opt the latest thing. And there have been times in history before, you know, starting in the, the late 1960s, early seventies, when people started speaking out against diets and the fat positive movement was born and, you know, people were, were stridently anti-diet and then diets sort of shape-shifted and were, you know, not that everyone in the culture was strong, stridently anti-diet, but that was starting to become a viable uh, alternative. Mm -hmm. And then I think diet culture got wind of that, you know, in the 1990s, it started really being clear that diets don't work. And so diet culture shape-shifted into this thing of, oh, it's not about weight loss. It's about wellness or it's not right. a diet. It's a lifestyle change. It's about health. And like, who doesn't care about health? Right. And so I think it always is going to want to stay relevant and keep shifting into whatever form is most palatable at a given moment. And so right now, intuitive eating has become, you know, positioned as the alternative to diet culture. And so diet culture is like, I want a piece of that pie. Let me get in there and, right. you know, sell myself as intuitive eating, basically. Right. Um, and because I, you know, I think, and I come across people who have come around to accept that extreme fad diets don't work, but mm -hmm. it's still, there's still this belief or this hope that, well, you know, if we can just do clean eating or if we can just be moderate, if we can just listen, you know, the, it, it's, it's this sneaky thing where people still want to hold on to this belief that there's something that they can do to essentially lose weight and keep it off forever. Right. Mm -hmm. Yep. It's, there's always some sneaky form that that belief is going to take. And, and I get it. I mean, I think, you know, diet culture has so effectively sold the idea that to be successful, to be loved, to be accepted, to be all the things you need to be thin. And so people who are in larger bodies or people who are, you know, further away from the cultural ideal of thinness, which is 
extremely thin as like mm-hmm. the thin as possible one could be, you know, I think anyone who is further away from that, but especially people who are on the higher ends of the spectrum, I totally get why they would want to lose weight and why that belief and that dream is so salient because they're being oppressed for not matching up with that supposed ideal. Yeah. And, you know, there just is no quote unquote solution that we know of. Really the only, the only solution to that problem is dismantling the system of beliefs that created it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There is this belief that if I can just become thin, I'll become healthy. Or if I can just become healthy, then my body will, you know, be thin because apparently everyone is supposed to be thin, which just isn't true. Right. Right. Yeah. Size diversity is a real thing. It's, Mm -hmm. we're meant to exist on a spectrum of body sizes and yeah, that, that insidious belief that once I become healthy, I'll become thin is just. I think one of the, one of the sneakier modern forms of diet culture, cause it's like, mm-hmm. oh, you know, you'll release the weight once, right. once you're eating in a way that is healthy and sustainable. And it's like, no, that is another diet. Yeah. And that, that's also like one, like a woo woo, like law of attraction sort of diet. Right. Totally. Where, where it's yes. like, yes, the burdens, the burdens of your life, you're holding as fat on your body. And it's like, no, my entire family has this body, like, leave me alone essentially. Exactly. Yeah. It's fucked up. It really is. So fucked up. I experienced so much diet culture in the kinds of stories that they wanted to do about the book. And I Mm -hmm. actually lost a couple features because it wasn't actually what they wanted. They wanted me to do a before and after they wanted Mm -hmm. me to talk about weight. And I was like, that's not what this is. And those things just fell apart. Have you experienced that or has it been pretty clearly anti-diet? I think the people who've actually read the book have been, have come to me with pitches or questions that are so much more anti-diet than I ever experienced before. That's so great. I'm feeling really good about that. Like in terms of having this book as a resource to give people and just be like, just read this, like, Uh. and then maybe I'll understand. Um, But the people who haven't, you know, it's kind of clear, maybe you've experienced this too. It's kind of clear people who've skimmed the book or Mm -hmm. not really read or, you know, not um, kind of delved as deeply into your work, you know, that, that contingent, I still do find, um, you know, coming to me with diety questions and things like that. But I've been, I've been pleasantly surprised by like, you know, at least the sort of higher profile, um, writers that have contacted me. I, I never know what to expect with people who are like, you know, busy freelance journalists or have a staff job somewhere. Cause you know, having time to read a book like this is not always, it's not always possible, but, um, But I feel, yeah, I've been pleasantly surprised so far. That's so great. That is so, so, so great. And I remember in, in some responses, I would try to say, well, it doesn't really work. You know, I would try to like, almost like educate in the response. And they were like, mm-hmm. oh, this isn't what we're looking for. Bye. You know, it's okay. interesting though, too, because this is probably about a year or like a, like almost a year from when your book came out. So I think that your book helped plant that seed for people and like shift the zeitgeist even further in this direction. There have been some big, yeah, I think it has. And I, and there's been some big features on intuitive eating and like the anti-diet movement in the last year or two that have, 
you know, helped shift that like with Evelyn Triboli kind of leading the charge. So, you know, I think that maybe that is playing a role too in how people are receiving my book because they've heard that, they've seen that stuff. And so they're coming with a little more of that lens to mine. It's so great. And it has to happen that way, right? If there's Mm -hmm. just one person talking about it, sure, there'll be people who are like, wow, this makes so much sense to me. But for the most part, people are going to be like, I don't know, maybe Mm -hmm. you have to, like, it has to be coming from a couple different angles. You have, it has to have time to like marinate in the culture in order for people to really be able to hear what we're saying, because it is Mm -hmm. so foreign. It's so different than the way we were brought up from the, the way we learned what health and, you know, happiness was right. Yep. And we've had, you know, 150 years of diet culture at this point Mm -hmm. to have to counter, like those messages are so ingrained in people. I don't think it's going to be, you know, they're not going to go away overnight. So I think it's going to take probably years of chipping away and having more books like this come out and just like a steady drip of anti-diet content, which I think we've been doing already at the sort of like podcast level and, Mm -hmm. you know, having our own movement and our own blogs and, you know, occasionally breaking out into the mainstream with bigger articles and more mainstream publications. But like, I think now with the books, you know, your book, my book, um, you know, some other books that have come out in the, like Mm -hmm. Virginia Soul Smith's book, Mm -hmm. uh, Laura Thomas in the UK, and now Evelyn and Elise have, you know, they released their workbook in 2017. And then they have a 25th anniversary edition of intuitive eating coming out. That's going to be like so much more stridently kind of overtly anti-diet, I think than the last one. That's so good. I'm so excited for that. I'm so excited. Because of all the people who you know, I, I totally understand why it was worded the way it was. I like totally get it. And from an anti-diet perspective, it's very clear, right? Mm-hmm. But my diet brain just twisted it so fast. Yeah. So I'm really excited that it's going to have, I think it's going to have more like health at every size overtly in there. Right. Which I think yeah. is so important. Yeah. And, and I think I think it is. It's like you have to really build in those guardrails. I I found that myself too when I first read, you know, intuitive eating or just anything to do with with this stuff when I was in the diet place or coming out of diet culture. Mm-hmm. It like did not compute in the way that it right. needed to. It was sort of right. like, oh, okay, so this is about weight loss. It's like right. No, it I was like, say well, that the only anywhere, but. <laughs> exactly. It doesn't say that anywhere, but in my head, yeah. I was like, well, the only reason I would ever learn to in to eat intuitively is because it's going to make me lose weight. Right. Like that's mm-hmm. my natural body. It just like, Ugh, I, I yeah. needed so much, uh, so much relearning, you know? So yeah, that's, I know. it is very exciting that it's going to be even more overtly in there and it's just going to continue to help more and more. I know. I'm so excited. And it's, I mean, it also, I think is inspiring to me to know that they're doing that because having just come out with this book and maybe you've experienced this as well. I'm like, Oh, there's like always more that you want to put in. Right. There's always more changes to make. And like, I got the final book like held in my hands was like, okay, this is it. And then open the front cover. And I'm like, Oh shit, there's a typo on the front inner flap. Like what? It's like they insert. So this was not me, but someone inserted like, I think just for space, honestly, because there was like a little bit of extra space at the bottom. So they were like, Christy Harris, in this book, Christy Harrison, comma, registered dietitian, nutritionist. And that like hadn't been in there before, but they spelled dietitian with a C. And I'm like, no, it's a T. 
I think it's spelled wrong in my book too. Uh. Like I, it's just, it, that is so frustrating. And that's when I had so much anxiety when it was like my final pass and I had to do it really fast because they gave it to me late. And I just was like, I, I cannot deal with the fact that this is my last chance to change everything. Like mm. I was so panicked over it. And I was like, I, I don't know if this explains it well enough. Like, I feel like you need to add a thing that it like, mm. it was just like, it's no. because the stakes feel really high because I, you want to be able to articulate this just the right way because things can be really triggering. Things can mm-hmm. be alienating. There's so much you want to put in. I totally understand that. <laughs> It's like, oh, I know. And, but to see that Evelyn and Elise have, this is now their fourth edition and it's like the 25th anniversary edition and and like intuitive eating has helped so many people and they've learned so much along the way. And like the earlier editions, they now are like, yeah, don't read those. Those are problematic. I love that. It's like, it's so great. It's so heartening just to be like, okay. So even if, you know, in five or 10 years, we look at our books and we're like, Ooh, I would do that differently. Like there's a chance to do that. There's a chance. There's a chance. No, that's so great. And and I, I think that that's the way it has to be, right? Like we have to be willing to, you know, be wrong and say, oh, you know, I, I know what I was going for, but <laughs> in the past five years, this is what I've learned or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I think that's really, really great. Um, okay. So I want to, I want to ask you in the work that you do with people who are trying to learn to eat intuitively, what are some of the biggest mistakes that you see people making? when they're starting out? Such a good question. I mean, I think really the overarching set of mistakes or like category of mistakes is turning intuitive eating into a diet, mm. you know, and they, and there's so many ways to do that, right? Like, <laughs> you know, like you said, it's like, oh, well, I'm going to do this and it'll make me thin uh-huh. or I will have to lose weight first and then I can come to it and then it'll keep me thin mm-hmm, right. or, um, you know, what Isabel Fox and Duke calls the hunger and fullness diet mm-hmm. where it's like, I can only eat when I'm hungry and I must stop when I'm full and, you know, and, and like exquisitely sort of pay attention to every little nuance that my body gives me to tell me when it's hungry, to tell me when it's full. And right. you get so wrapped around the axle with that, that it's, you know, you're basically, you are doing another diet. I did that for so many years. Like weight loss. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's the most common way of interpret, like misinterpretation of intuitive yeah. eating I see and just makes so much sense in diet culture too, because like, I think the way diet culture conditions us all to think it's like, well, if you're eating only when you're hungry and stopping when you're full, then you have to lose weight. Right. Right. Like that's just, you know, the message we've all gotten for so long. Right. Um, so yeah, I think that is a big one. I think the, um, like the wellness diet, I think really kind of gets in into intuitive eating sometimes too. You know, what I call the wellness diet is like mm-hmm. that sneaky modern guise of diet culture that pretends to be all about health and wellness, but is actually just another diet. And it's about like cutting out foods and right. or like just eat clean, clean or like just, yeah, yeah, exactly. And like quote unquote, avoid, avoiding quote unquote processed foods, right? Um, all that stuff. So, you know, people I think can apply that mindset to intuitive eating and like think, oh, intuitive eaters are these ethereal creatures who only eat whole plant-based foods and never touch a sweet or a processed food. Right. Cause and if like, I was being really ugh. intuitive, I would only crave whole foods. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> Not true. <laughs> yeah. So that's another one I think that is really challenging, especially for people who are like 
um, have maybe ethical reasons as well, like environmental concerns or animal mm-hmm. rights reasons tied up in that. I think it can get so tricky to disentangle. Yeah, it's a, stuff. it's a gray, you know, there's definitely a gray area where it's like, no, it's totally fine to, you know, you know, to be vegan for ethical reasons, but just be so super honest with yourself about where it kind of slides into orthorexia. Cause it does, mm-hmm. it does often. And like being so careful too, to notice, you know, if disordered motivations are there, disordered thinking is creeping into your, you know, veganism or mm-hmm. whatever, you know, style of eating you're trying to do for ethical reasons. Maybe it, like maybe this is time to step back from it. Maybe this is time to say, okay, I'm going to prioritize my recovery, and exactly. you know, I'm going to give to environmental causes while I'm doing that, or I'm going to work for candidates who are, you know, working towards a green new deal or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. I mean, by the way, I've I've been actually asked this question a lot lately. I feel like this this area of like the sort of nexus of sustainability and diet culture is something that a lot of people are really curious about and that I I had really a lot of fun and, and sort of, you know, was, it was just an interesting part of my book to think through when I was writing it. Um, Mm -hmm. so, you know, one thing that I didn't, that didn't make it into the book, but that has like come out subsequently, um, and I've been talking a lot more about it is like, there's, there's reports now on sort of who is responsible for the most pollution and and greenhouse gas emissions in the world. And guess what? It's not meat eaters or dairy, you know, it's not animal products, consumers, it's corporations. It's these large polluters, fossil fuel companies, um, you know, big corporations that are not adequately regulated and that are, right. you know, a hundred companies around the world are responsible for 71% of global greenhouse gas emissions. Oh, Isn't that and how convenient. Like, ridiculous? And, and yeah, and how convenient. To blame the individual <laughs> yeah. for like eating a steak. Right. Yeah. And like, <laughs> right. it's just so, right. it's so insidious because it, it takes the blame off of these companies and puts it on individuals, mm-hmm. which is so what our system loves to do with everything mm-hmm. regarding health and the planet. And it also makes, you know, it doesn't make as much of a difference actually. Like when people are right you know, thinking that their individual actions are going to, are going to make such a huge difference and doing these things at great personal sacrifice, you know, and, and oftentimes sacrificing their mental well-being in order to try to change mm-hmm. how they eat in a way that maybe is exacerbating disordered eating or triggering disordered eating. You know, these companies, these, these polluters are the ones who are actually going to make the biggest difference and, yeah. you know, their sacrifices are something that we should all be working towards. Like them have, you know, being regulated into making changes is yes. something that would actually be so much more effective than our personal sacrifices that would come at a cost to us. And when you think of, you know, I always say like, I'm an animal too. You're an animal too. Like we, mm-hmm. we're, yeah. we're thinking about animal rights or if we're thinking about, you know, the toll of things on the environment, it's a whole ecosystem, right? And we are part of yes. that ecosystem. And so if something is having a harmful effect on us and our well-being, we have to really take that into account and we have to minimize harm to ourselves as well. I think that that's so important because yeah, if, if what we want to know is that we are doing our part to care for the planet, it's all about those way bigger changes. Mm-hmm. <sighs> um, okay. Let me, so I actually asked um, on Instagram oh, yeah. if anyone had some questions and I chose just a couple that I'm going that I'm going to ask you, and 
I'm sure that, that uh, you know, they're kind of like specific questions, but I think that we'll be able to give answers that are a little bit more holistic. Mm -hmm. um, the first question is, are there any anti-diet options for keeping pre-diabetes from turning into diabetes? Oh, yes. That's such a good question. And I think it's a very loaded question because... Yes. So, you know, in my experience and the scientific research that I've explored on this topic on prediabetes, mm -hmm. from what I've seen, prediabetes is a really controversial quote unquote diagnosis. And mm -hmm. in fact, a lot of um, medical authorities say it's, it's not really a diagnosis at all. It should not be treated as a diagnosis because it's not really a disease. It doesn't meet the criteria for a disease. Mm -hmm. It doesn't actually predict, you know, the, the sort of thinking on, on why it's now being diagnosed. And it was, you know, I think this is new within the last 10 or 15 years that people are, uh, doctors are quote unquote diagnosing it. Right. Um, is, is largely due to, well, so sort of two reasons. I'll, I'll give the kind of good faith reason and then the bad faith reason. Okay. Um, so the, the good faith reason is like that, you know, it's, it, people think that it predicts uh, development of full-blown diabetes. And so they want to help people, you know, avoid that fate. Right. Um, the thing is though, with, when you look at the science, there's a very, only a very, very small percentage of people who have pre-diabetes progress to full-blown diabetes. And so it's yeah. like within, I forget the exact number. I wish I had had a chance to look it up before we talk, but it's either 5% or 15%. I forget, mm -hmm. but like, you know, in any case, the vast majority of people with this so-called pre-diabetes diagnosis right. never actually progress to diabetes. And so right. it's just, you know, an elevation, a slight elevation in blood sugar outside the so-called normal range. Now the bad faith reason for a sort of emergence of this pre-diabetes quote unquote diagnosis is that the pharmaceutical industry who makes diabetes drugs mm. has gotten really involved and, you know, given a lot of money to organizations like the American Diabetes Association oh. and pushed them in this direction of, of lowering the cutoffs basically, or making pre-diabetes its own thing rather than just, you know, slightly elevated blood sugar and, you know, not making as big a deal out of it. So right. that is really something to keep in mind. And we saw this happen with quote unquote obesity, right? Yep. This, a very similar thing happened with the sort of creep of, you know, disease labeling into right. what was just sort of a, a neutral fact about bodies. Right. This and is not a conspiracy theory. This actually this is real. happens. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. This is real. And I, I mean, I talk about this in my book about the, about that um, history, the sort of making yeah. of the quote unquote obesity epidemic and how, you know, pharmaceutical companies and diet companies uh -huh. were, you know, giving these consulting fees and hiring people researchers to work for them. And then those researchers turned around and created cutoffs and created the concept of quote unquote obesity that benefited their benefactors, that benefited yep. the diet industry and the pharmaceutical industry. I quote um, a researcher or a, a political scientist in the book named J. J. Eric Oliver, who wrote an amazing book in 2006 called Fat Politics that I would encourage mm, people to look at. Yeah. Trigger warning for like some fat phobic stuff kind of later on, but the, um, the sort of early part of the book where he's laying out the case against the so-called war on obesity is really fantastic. And he writes that, you know, it's almost impossible to find any major figure in the field of quote unquote obesity research who is not 
you know, financially in bed with the pharmaceutical industry or the diet industry or both. Right. And, you know, really increasingly they are one and the same because the weight, the pharmaceutical industry makes so many weight loss drugs and is, you know, very much invested in diet culture and weight loss. So, you know, and and that that has measurable effects. I also talked to um, Tracy Mann, who's an excellent researcher at the University of Minnesota, has done a lot of research on why diets don't work. And she said that, you know, most of the diet research that we see that has favorable results is coming out of these clinics that do quote unquote obesity uh, prevention or management, right? right? So the clinics are, right. you know, their their livelihood is based on weight loss, and so they have a vested interest in pr- producing research. Extremely that, biased, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And like the, re, you know, they want to produce research that justifies their existence, basically. Right. And it makes Ugh. sense at a at a human level, you know, people don't want to put themselves out of a job. But I think it's it's really insidious when it you know because it creates so much harm, and you know so that's that's really the story with the the weight loss industry and the concept of quote unquote obesity and increasingly I'm seeing parallels with that with pre so called pre diabetes and so I think that's the first thing to recognize is that it's not the scary disease it's made out to be it's not something that you have to panic over. And, you know, if you have a slightly elevated blood sugar reading, A, you know, it doesn't always mean you're going to have it the next time too. Sometimes right. there's there's different readings that can happen and, you know, little flukes and people end up outside the quote unquote normal range. And also, you know, more importantly, I think fear mongering about this so-called disease that is very controversial and contested even as a disease is causing more of the problems that it purports yep. to solve, right? Because the stress, the stress, the <laughs> weight stigma, the mm-hmm. weight cycling, all of that puts you at greater risk of diabetes. Yep. And so when you're being told, you know, to lose weight or change how you eat, um, and that, you know, like this is really scary and bad and, and it's, you're being stressed out about mm-hmm. this supposed diagnosis, that's actually increasing your risk. So I think the, the first thing is really just like, so, like yeah. relax about it, try to breathe, try not to panic and know that this is actually a really controversial diagnosis in the first place, quote unquote diagnosis. Right. Um, and then B, you know, there are health at every size um, practices that you can take that, that help stabilize blood sugar and help reduce the risk of diabetes. But kind of the number one of of all of those is just reducing weight stigma and reducing disordered eating. You know, I think that's the foundation of all of health at all health at every size and intuitive eating principles is like getting rid of this diet culture stuff first, getting rid of the disordered eating and the disordered thinking about food and movement and body size so that you can ultimately open up to things that might be beneficial, like joyful movement, you know, moving your body in a way that feels good and is fun and is not punishing or geared towards weight loss. Um, Gentle nutrition, which is, you know, not like fad diet nutrition or diet culture nutrition, but, you know, thinking about solid scientifically based, really simple nutrition principles that can help you, you know, have good energy and honor your hunger and feel good and kind of sustain you in a, in a more, um, you know, in a way that feels good to you, but that also is in line with all the other principles of intuitive eating and the anti-diet approach. Yeah. So, you know, I think the I think the first step is just getting, you know, shedding the diet culture so that you can then move into a place of of true self-care. 
such a good answer. And I really think that so many people have diabetes in their mind as the reason that either they can't, or, or the, just even the fear of diabetes, the fear of, of eating a donut turning into diabetes, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And there's so much fear mongering around food and weight and diabetes. And so just being able to turn that on its head and say, hello, look, this is all perpetuating itself. All mm-hmm. of this fear, all of this, all the dis- disordered thoughts about weight and food, it's all, you know, feeding itself. So super yeah. important. Yeah. It's uh, diabetes is like a whole other thing. I actually have an episode coming up that I'm super excited to air on my podcast with uh, Laura Newman, who's a health at every size. <gasps> yes. Diabetes. I've been wanting to talk to her too. Oh, yes. that's so exciting. Okay. So if anybody doesn't listen to food psych, which I can't imagine there's anyone who <laughs> listened to mine who doesn't listen to yours, but go over and listen to and follow food psych Christie's podcast. Um, okay. Just two more questions and then I will let you go. But I get this question all the time. Um, and people say, what do I do? Or what's your advice for dealing with medications that increase appetite or cause weight gain? Mm-hmm. Such a good ask. question. Yeah. So I think, you know, the first thing I just want to say is like, I have compassion for people who are in that boat. I think it's really hard in this culture to be on a medication that is changing your body size or changing your appetite because this culture is so demonizing and stigmatizing of, you know, eating food in general, mm-hmm. being right. hungry and, and also gaining weight. And so, you know, I think, I think that though is one of the keys to handling this is recognizing that a lot of these beliefs around why it's maybe quote unquote bad to be on a medication that's increasing appetite or that's causing weight gain is, you know, to, is, is diet culture. Right? Yeah. And, it's you know, weight stigma in the first place. Yep. Like what if that's really good for your body gaining right. like a little bit of weight, you know? Yep. It Maybe could that's be all part of exactly it. what your body needs is to gain weight. It could exactly. be that, you know, especially with some psych, psych, med, you know, psychiatric medications, mm-hmm. um, that, you know, people have been depressed and not eating enough and then mm-hmm. they take medication and then their body gets its appetite back and gets back to a place where, you know, it feels, it feels safe. Um, you know, in some cases there are medications that yes, can increase weight or increase appetite, um, kind of beyond what, you know, it might've been otherwise. Uh, but that's not something that I think we need to demonize or judge. I think it's, you know, I, uh, as evidenced by my discussion of the pharmaceutical industry before, I'm no apologist for the pharmaceutical industry. I think they do a lot of bad stuff, but I also think that, you know, some medications are life-saving and we wouldn't be here without modern medications that keep us alive or that help deal with, you know, whatever diseases and conditions come up for us and help them help us manage them. And, you know, some, some medications I think are really, really necessary. And when you think about, you know, the, the cost uh, benefit analysis or the sort of, you know, weighing the, the benefits of the medication against the potential side effects. Mm -hmm. I think that that calculus is really skewed by weight stigma and diet culture Mm -hmm. because it makes you think, you know, weight gain is this terrible thing and I couldn't possibly, you know, take that, that side effect on or, 
um, having a bigger appetite and not knowing when I'm really quote unquote really hungry or full um, is a bad thing, right? But that right. that thinking comes from diet culture, you know, specifically the hunger and fullness piece. I think is tied up with the hunger and fullness diet yes. that I was talking about earlier. Yes, that interpretation exactly. of intuitive eating, where it's like, well, you have to know exactly when you're hungry and when your body says versus when some you know, quote unquote, artificial medication says, and it's like, okay, that's not, that's not intuitive eating. That's not helpful because intuitive eating is a holistic approach to food and well-being. And, you know, if you're on a medication, say for bipolar disorder or something like that, where, you know, you would really be, um, you would not be able to function without that medication. And you finally found something that is helpful to you. And one of the side effects is increased appetite, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that is that is fine. Like that, if, if your version of intuitive eating means that your appetite is a little bit increased and you still eat in response to that hunger, that's exactly where you need to be. That's, that's what's going to promote your overall well-being. Because, you know, intuitive eating really would say like eat in response to hunger no matter what. Like even yeah. if you think the medication is quote unquote artificially increasing your appetite, it doesn't really matter because the effect of restriction is going to be the same. If you try, exactly. if you tell yeah. yourself, oh, I can't possibly be hungry now. That's just the medication talking. It's still creating the exact same deprivation and restriction that any other diet would. And yeah. it's, it's still dieting for all intents and purposes, you know? Yeah. So I know it gets complicated when it comes to weight because being in a larger body in our culture is so stigmatized mm-hmm. and, you know, gaining weight, especially if you already were in a larger body can feel so scary. But I just want to say like, that is the culture's problem. That's not your, like, that's not you. That's not your fault. There's Mm -hmm. nothing wrong with you for being in a larger body or for gaining weight. And if weight gain is a side effect of a life-saving medication you're taking, you deserve help and you deserve to have your life saved. And, and, you know, weight gain, I think is not something that needs to be Um, feared or made out to be this horrible thing. Yeah. I think that's such a great answer. Christy, you're amazing. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. My last question is where can everybody find you? Yeah. People can find me on my website, christyharrison.com. I've got info about the book there, the podcast, everything I do. So that is a good hub for, for finding me. And you can also find my podcast, Food Psych, wherever you're listening to this podcast. If you just type in Food Psych to the search bar, it's F-O-O-D space P-S-Y-C-H, no E on the end and two words. Go get her book. It's really, really good. I'm so excited for you. I'm so excited for it to be out. Thank um, you. And I'm so excited. Christy, thank Yay. you. Thank you. That was so great. Oh, that was so much fun. I really appreciate it. So this is Caroline talking to you from the future when I'm actually um, getting this podcast ready to get into your hands. So usually when you're recording an interview with somebody over Skype or Zoom over the internet, you talk a little bit in the beginning. You say like, hi, I'm going to start recording in a minute, blah, blah, blah. And then at the end you say, okay, I stopped recording. And then you like kind of talk as if you're not recording it anymore. Um, and what's weird is that I did stop recording, but it still recorded the whole thing, which is really great because I had forgotten to talk about the fact that Christy and I are doing a live event together at the end of January in Philadelphia at my local bookstore. 
it's technically a, a an event for Christie's book launch, but it's in conversation with me and we will be doing book signings of both of our books and I really hope that everyone who can make it out comes. It's a free event. There's going to be a talk, there's going to be Q&A, there's going to be signing and I think it'll be really fun. So that's January 30th uh 7:15 there'll be a link to the event and to the bookstore in the show notes of this episode and this is what I said to Christy after we had a quote unquote stopped recording oh shoot I'll say this um I'll say this like actually before or after uh-huh. the actual episode but we didn't even talk about how we're doing an event together oh my god I know uh, I know I'll, I'll say it I'll say it yeah on, like on the actual podcast episode okay cool that'll be awesome yeah that's coming up so soon Wait, I know see. I can't even believe it it felt so far away it's like a month away <laughs> that's so wild I can't even so if there's anything else I'm forgetting I'll just email you about it and I'll update you on when the episode is coming out yeah that sounds other great. than that I'm just so thankful I know people are gonna love the episode I know people are gonna love the book and I'm excited. Oh I'm really excited. I'm so excited too. And I'm so thankful for your support and for, you know, helping me get the word out. Of course. It's, it's so nice. Of course. So there you have it. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Christy. All of the links to find her and her book and her podcast are in the show notes. So check them out. Remember before I played the conversation with Christy, I said that I was going to be rambling at the end. Well, I literally was full of hope and energy back then and now I'm just so tired and I don't think I have the will to say any of the things that I thought I wanted to say. I don't even know what I was going to say. I was going to be like, oh, my dog is here and oh, uh, I have, you know, anti-diet merch and oh, uh, I... I don't know. I have no idea what I was going to say. I think I was going to talk about the whole moon drama. There was a whole drama on my Instagram um, where I <laughs> I talked about the full moon last month and I talked about it again this month in a very, very tongue-in-cheek way. So I'm not going to get into it now, but I think I will in another episode. I'm just going to explain because it actually is worth explaining. Um, I don't know if you guys don't realize this, but... I am kind of woo-woo and spiritual, but at the same time, I don't put too much stock in it. And all of the things that I was saying about the moon were extremely (laughs) lighthearted and then even became tongue-in-cheek just to like make fun of the fact that people, some people, not a lot of people, but some people were like, there's no science to support this. And I was like, who cares? Like, calm down. I'm not trying to teach you about the moon. Like, calm down down. So there was that, but then there's the other side of like, okay, well, at the same time, even though I have literally no stock in any of this, like I don't really, it doesn't really matter to me whether there's truth or not to the moon being able to affect us. Though, of course, I err on the side of believing that it does because I believe in a lot of mysterious and wonderful, magical things that can't fully be explained. Um without trying to like shove it down people's throats because there's no use in doing that because there's no point believe what you want to believe when it comes to things like that when it comes to the mystical things um but at the same time like I don't even like I don't 
I have so much doubt in so many things and so many mystical things. And I think that a lot of people abuse like magical thinking in a way. Like, I think that that's a really, I'm kind of trying to write my second book about this. I know that I said that it's about rest and it definitely is, but because I'm also trying to explain my experience with dieting and self-help, I'm also trying to explain this very difficult thing to explain, which is that I do believe in something and I do believe that there are so many things that we can't fully, that we can't fully explain and that we never will be able to. At the exact same time, I think that people abuse magical thinking and um, that it can get really dark really fast and that it can be the basis of a lot of cult-like mentality and I think that you know I think that both things are true I, I believe in something that I can't fully put my finger on and at the same time I, I think that um, it's a slippery slope so I I'm trying to find the words to articulate this um, in a way that is enjoyable and um and lighthearted I'm trying to write about it that's like literally what I'm trying to write my book about but it's really hard it's really 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 hard to strike that balance um so I think I will talk about Moongate as somebody called it in my dms uh Moongate and because I have a lot of thoughts about it but until that time I just want to wish you a happy holidays because this is that week and I know it can be really hard for some people, but I hope you can have the best possible experience that you can that you can make for yourself and that you can take a little bit of time for yourself too. Um, and I will be back in the new year. And in that new year, in 2020, I really, really hope that you don't go on a diet. My birthday is January 5th, and maybe that could be your gift to me to not go on a diet. All right. Bye. Happy holidays. <laughs>